I love working in tech because it's challenging. I entered politics because I want to improve uh, my surroundings. What pisses me off is uh, very few things, almost nothing. <laughs> uh, I get my inspiration from. I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> My mission is to... I don't really have a mission. Uh, is to just do things better and make things better. And my role model is... I don't have one. Hello and welcome to the Recursive Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to a very special guest. He combines two very unlikely professions. He's a founder of a cybersecurity company called Log Sentinel, but also very active in the Bulgarian political life. He's a software engineer with a passion for technology, but he's also a person with a very active citizen stance. He's vocal supporter of an open data and e-governance and has been public supporter and expert helping the Bulgarian government implement both in its work. With his work, Bujidar aims to help Bulgarian citizens engage and communicate easily and digitally with Bulgarian institutions. He truly believes that e-government is the basis of trust between people and its government. Bujidar Bujanov, welcome to the Recursive Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Uh, it's a very interesting collaboration between um, a technology and um, active citizenship. Uh, so. Um, I've been keen to meet you uh, for the last couple of uh, years, knowing what you are uh, working on. But let's um, let's go back in time just a bit. Um, how did programming and technology come into your life? Well, that, that's quite some time ago. Uh, I was in in school. Uh, probably uh, my father contributed to that, being a programmer uh, himself. Uh, but I was kind of interested, curious, uh, I bought books uh, back then, that was still a thing, uh, and started uh, doing some simple things like uh, HTML websites, a uh, bit of JavaScript, stuff like that. Uh, and that was interesting, the creating stuff uh, that's just from your computer, from your home, you can create new things uh, that are uh, globally visible uh and solve some problems uh so i continued uh coding through high school uh won some awards in in high school it competitions uh and uh, that it was kind of decided that i'm going to be in it in software development and uh the, the likes uh from probably around sixth or seventh grade what has been driving you to go further into the profession because young people tend to test different things. You seem that you have stick to um, what you love doing since you were a teenager. Well, technology changes. It, it doesn't change so rapidly that we are used to hearing, but it still changes a lot. Uh, and it has different challenges. And once you kind of cross some milestone, um, then you can go to the next, which can be in terms of scale, uh, for example, my uh, work when I was living in the Netherlands uh, was related to a very high-scale project that uh, you can't really do for, for any company out there. Uh, 
uh, and then solving some uh, actual complex problems that are not related to scale but to uh, different industries. Uh, I was doing uh, e-government projects even before I uh, took up uh, kind of the, the civil uh, route. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's a very diverse field. Uh, now in cybersecurity, it's a completely uh, different area than uh, many people in the IT sector are uh, doing. So it's a very diverse field, very interesting, very challenging at times. Uh, there are open problems, and that's the thing that uh, always motivates me that, okay, there is this problem. It's kind of solved, but uh, more or less uh, hackily with a bit patchwork of, of solutions. So let's do the proper solution. Uh, and that's a, a good motivator. All right. Um, you were, you had a diploma from Goldsmith in mm -hmm. London. Um, you already mentioned being in Netherlands. What made you come back? Well, uh, the the Goldsmiths uh, high education, it was uh, an external program. So I really didn't have to go there. I went uh, once just out of curiosity, but uh, the exams uh, were done here in the British Council in Bulgaria. Uh, all of the courseworks and uh, the likes uh, submitted over uh, mail. Uh, so uh, I haven't really lived in uh, London, but I've, I lived in uh, in Amsterdam, uh, and uh, it was kind of an obvious uh, decision to come back because. Uh, in terms of the IT sector, it's one uh, oasis uh, over here. Uh, salaries are obviously very good, uh, and you uh, live sort of detached from the overall uh, reality in Bulgaria, which is uh, much worse than the one in the Netherlands or uh, the UK. Uh, and uh, as a friend said back then, uh, if I know that tomorrow I can pack my bags and leave, because of the open borders, because of the flights, cheap flights, etc., then there is no reason for me to to stay somewhere else. I can stay at home. Uh, now this might change if uh, the open borders uh, kind of fail or stuff like that. But so far we are in a stable uh, state, so uh, it's better to be home uh, and still work for the for the largest corporations or uh, create a, a company yourself that uh, serves uh, some of the largest mm -hmm. corporations. So what? sparked the idea of founding your own company, like security startup? Well, it's the, the problems. I mean, that's usually the thing that, that uh, creates a startup idea. You see a problem, you see that it's not exactly properly solved, uh, or uh, part of the market is unserved. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you say, well, I have enough knowledge and experience in that domain. Solving a problem that exists out there and that's not yet solved or not yet properly solved, or there are parts of the market that are unserved. Uh, combined with uh, the knowledge and the expertise of the founders uh, is kind of a recipe for, for creating a startup. Uh, I, before that, I was advisor uh, in the Council of Ministers. We kind of uh, tried to solve the, the government problems of uh, traceability, of uh, not being able to tamper with, uh, with your tracks when, once you do something online, which is a very serious pro problem uh, in e-government, but not only. Uh, and we decided, and I decided, uh, that, uh, yeah, that's a thing that can be solved properly with the right cryptography, with the right tools, uh, applied, combined, uh, in a way that the way I see it. Uh, and so that, that's how it started. Obviously, a startup goes through, through many transformations, many uh, 
touching the market, uh, evolving to to kind of different aspects. But we have kind of kept the core idea of protecting the integrity of what happens uh, in the digital ecosystem uh, and building on top of that in detecting threats and uh, countering those threats, etc. You've mentioned numerous times that uh, the, this, such kind of products are built on trust. So what is your approach to building trust uh, with, your, with, with your clients, with your customers? Well, uh, first, that's the, the conversations that we're having. I mean, it's, initially, you can't really build trust uh, being some company from somewhere. Uh, but once you actually engage with them and they see that uh, you see their problem, you have been uh, in that industry, you understand their pains, uh, and even uh, more than they sometimes expect. Uh, that and, and that they're speaking to a technical person. That on, on the first call, they're meeting not just the founder, uh, but a technical person that speaks their language. And I think that that creates uh, trust. Is it a, a benefit that you're the founder and the technical person? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I believe that founders, uh, at least one of the founders should be uh, technical because, well, not every startup solves a technical problem. Uh, some startups are just using technology to solve some other problem. Uh, but we are uh, doing both. We're solving the general security problem, but also technical problems. So I think that uh, a technical founder uh, is good both for, for this trust uh, and also for the sustainability of the company, because if you don't, if you if you outsource the technical part, uh, you can't be sure that it's built on the right foundations. Uh, and I, as a, as a founder, I know that that's my stuff, uh, and I want to build it properly and not just uh, yeah, someone outsourced something. Let's build it and go move move to the next project. It seems like you really believe in the. Uh personal example of building trust, not only to your customers, but also inside, inside the team. How do you build trust inside the team that, um, uh, like from your founder's perspective? I, I wouldn't say I have a recipe for that. Mm. Uh, it's just open communication. It, it sounds cliche, but that's, that's the way <laughs> I, I see it. I mean, uh, I don't have a checklist of, yeah, let's uh, do that in order to build, let's do team buildings twice a year, let's uh, have whatever meetings. Uh, I think that being uh, myself in that in those communications, being open about uh, the current situation, what we're doing, what are the customers that mm -hmm. we're targeting, uh, kind of telling the, the guys that are working on, uh, on the product that this particular feature is requested by this huge customer so that they can also feel the, the importance of, uh, of what's happening. It's, uh, it's extremely important for people to, to feel acknowledged and like to contribute. So Yeah, and uh, I think that the diverse technical uh, challenges that uh, I'm presenting to, to my uh, team uh, help in that direction because they're, they're really happy uh, with the different things that they're doing. They're not just doing one thing. Yeah, it's, it's cybersecurity, it's uh, just general Java programming in this case, but they're solving different types of problems with network monitoring, with uh, thread feeds, with whatever you, mm. you name it. And uh, it's, it's a, a new project every, every month, basically, even though it's, it's the same product. Awesome. So it seems that you have a talent for 
um, explaining complex topics. Um, and you've been doing this a lot in your personal blog for a couple of years. How would you explain the importance of uh, cybersecurity to a five-year-old? Well, th that's always a very complicated task <laughs> to explain something to her. I have a two and a half year old, okay. uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I haven't tried to explain cybersecurity to him, uh, but it's uh, most five year olds, I, I guess, these days know what the internet is and how, how it works. Uh, and at the core, cybersecurity is uh, making sure the internet still works, making sure you, are, uh, you can use it. Now, it's a far-fetched uh, description, uh, but if we don't have cybersecurity, everything will start falling apart. Uh, we'll have the ransomware that uh, kills certain websites, uh, kills certain company. You won't be able to do business with it. Uh, if uh, there's DDoS, you won't be able to access anything. So all of these aspects, they kind of security is there to make sure that things continue to operate as they should. As I mentioned, you are uh, having your personal blog and you keep doing it. Um, even though it's not very trendy anymore. As I say, like podcasts are the new blogs. Uh, why, why do you keep doing that? Oh, it's sort of a diary <laughs> for, for me. Uh, I mean, there's, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, uh, but uh, even Facebook is not fit for uh, the longer form of text. Mm. I mean, I do these uh, four or five paragraphs of, of text explaining some event or some concept on Facebook. But if something has to go longer than that uh, and you have to dive a little bit deeper into some concept, uh, it fits well in a blog post. And then the blog post can be shared in other mm. medium. Uh, uh, on Twitter, actually, that's, that's the way to share a long text because these long threads are just nightmare. <laughs> uh, and on Facebook, it might damage a little bit the, the virality of the post because if it's just Facebook text versus some shared link, the text kind of gets preference. But if you put a couple of paragraphs, a summary of the blog post, it, it's actually better. Uh, so yeah, it's a long form of, of sharing thoughts and ideas and a proper and a better record than, than Facebook, which is more uh, kind of volatile. What does writing bring you? Some of our guests say that, um, for example, drawing keeps them focused. Uh, do you stick to, to a, a current idea and think through it while writing? Or, or what happens in your mind while writing? Yeah, well, first, uh, I have a blog for, I don't know, 10 years, more. Uh, and at the beginning, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we've all been in literature classes in, in high school. They should have taught us to, to write proper text. Uh, it comes with practice. And so the first thing that blogging and writing text gives you is the ability to do it better and better. And that's kind of obvious, but uh, the other thing, uh, yeah, when I have an idea, I don't have the whole uh, blog post laid out in my head and just spitting it out. I actively think over the ideas while writing, sometimes researching stuff, uh, doing further analysis. Sometimes uh, there has been cases like that. I start with an idea, start writing, write a few paragraphs, go to research something, turns out not the thing that I initially thought. So I dropped it. I delete the blog post and ignore the topic altogether. Uh, so it's kind of a driver for the, for the deeper research and thinking on some topic. 
in order to be able to formulate it in a more understandable way, uh, but draw from facts that I previously didn't know. Uh, sometimes you start with an idea, you know that that should be true, but then you have to reach out and find the facts, and that enriches my uh, viewpoint even further. Okay, so if I can summarize that, you are basically further developing your knowledge through writing. Yes. Awesome. How cool is that? And uh, and, and that was actually, a, um, there's this Stack Overflow uh, yeah. thing that every developer has practiced. But you're to top 15, right? Yeah, I used to be top 30, but I haven't been answering for the past 10 years, I think. So I naturally dropped a little bit because there's still the old answers that get upvoted. Uh, but that was it, it was a similar uh, way uh, when I was answering Stack Overflow questions. Sometimes I didn't know the answer, uh, but I was the quickest one to actually research the topic and come up with an answer uh, than, than anyone else. And I had a lot of knowledge in advance, more knowledge than the person asking, uh, not enough to know the answer immediately, but enough to take me five minutes to, to come up with an answer. And that obviously helped me actually know the answer from now on. Basically, Stack Overflow is contributing towards others' teaching and studying, uh, giving them answers, but not uh, not like just do this, but like explaining what happens and why. Um, for me, like teaching others is the best form of um, understanding a topic, like you've already mentioned. Um, so, what made you? want to go and help others because we are now digging uh getting into the topic about your active citizenship i don't know <laughs> i mean it's rewarding uh to to get the appreciation to see that it really helps other people uh, i've been getting not only comments and upvotes and stuff like that but also emails uh, from mm. people that share that yeah they, they i really helped them not just a single answer but a a bunch of answers or that my blog posts have been very helpful to them and that's uh, flattering maybe uh, but it's uh, a motivator mm -hmm. uh, and I don't really have a, a well-defined reason for why I'm doing it it just feels good to help people <laughs> is this part of the reason for changing from technology and entrepreneurship towards using your knowledge to help others like the society in general because this is what you're currently doing you're mm -hmm. expert in the uh in the uh the commission for digitalization in the parliament well i i wouldn't say changing it's uh, it's complementary uh it's applying what i already know in one field to mm -hmm. to others uh but yeah this general will to to make things better not just for myself uh, because in the IT sector uh, in Bulgaria, you can do very good for yourself by just working there. Uh, but that kind of is, I feel that it's not enough. I don't know if uh, that's a good enough driver, but that's the way I, I think about it. Okay. Applying your knowledge and experience through. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of legislation, uh, public sector improvement, etc. It's it's so much in need of uh, someone knowing the details, the technological details, and not only, I mean, the, the general life cycle of building software. Uh, because in the end, yeah, it's legislation, it's norms, it's uh, contact with people, 
but it boils down to having the right tools and having the ability to build those tools. Uh, and governments all over the world, not just Bulgaria, has failed to do that. It's a very complex topic, but knowing the technical details of how something can work and should work helps a lot. Uh, seems like present couple of months uh, showed us that there are people like tech entrepreneurs that can enter the, uh, the National Assembly and the Parliament and um, help the country go in, in a direction like you just said, which is uh, great to see. Hopefully we see many others um, inspiring entrepreneurs center politics to change the, the way that uh, the system works at the moment, having their own knowledge and experience. Uh, what are the biggest challenges in doing business in Bulgaria um, that you're aiming to solve with uh, your participation in the, this Commission for Digitalization? Well, the, what the government in general solves is uh, bureaucracy. And bureaucracy kills um, innovation. It, again, sounds simplistic, but bureaucracy does kill innovation. When you have to uh, go through a lot of hoops uh, to just get something running, uh, that's bad. And for IT startups, that's not a huge issue, at least initially, mm -hmm. uh, because, yeah, you need a server uh, somewhere in, in Ireland or Germany, uh, a couple of develop developers, and you're up and running. Uh, but for other types of businesses, it's, uh, it's an issue. Uh, and removing just the idea that someone should you should go in circles through institutions, get stamps, get uh, approvals one way or another, which unfortunately, you know, corruption aspect is, uh, is a huge problem. When you digitize that, when you make it more transparent, uh, more straightforward, without the ability to circumvent uh, some processes, you eliminate corruption. Well, at least that level of corruption. Mm -hmm. There's, the grant corruption is a different uh, topic. But at least the, the corruption on the level, uh, yeah, we won't do that unless you do something for us, uh, can be, if not eliminated, then significantly reduced. Due to digital trace. Yeah, due to having a trace, due to not having a person in the loop at all, in some cases. Uh, because in, in, in many cases, uh, there are decisions that have to be made uh, that aren't actually decisions. They're following uh, some predefined logic and script. But the person has the option to not do it in a timely manner, risking probably some fines, risking internal penalties, but then you go to the human factor of, yeah, should we penalize uh, that person for doing that so late? Uh, or their corruption scheme actually benefits the ones that should actually uh, penalize them. Uh, so automating all of that eliminates this, uh, this risk. It's a bit high level, but uh, with many concrete examples, you can see that, um, yeah, if, for example, that there is a case where you have to uh, inform everyone, you know, uh, around some new building that that's going to happen, and but there there is no uh, time frame for that in the law, and it's something that should happen automatically. I mean, you you have the addresses, you have some sometimes email addresses of those people that live nearby. Uh, you, you can automatically uh, email them and you can automatically send something to the post office to distribute uh, mail to, to the citizens that live around. And this can be completely automated because it's a step of just letting people know something is happening. And yet this particular step is used for corruption. 
I won't send that. I'll block the process until you give me something. Yeah. So the bottleneck are people. Um, you are on, we're starting get, to get into this very hard to balance topic between the business, the entrepreneurship and the politics. So you are basically balancing it. Like you are working on your startup and, um, also giving your expertise in, in this, uh, commission for, uh, digitalization. Uh, what's the cost of that personally for you? Well, so far, uh, it's not that hard because, I mean, you can give expert advice, you can, you can help uh, members of parliament uh, from kind of the side. Uh, and that takes a little bit of focus, but when you know what you're doing, and I pretend that I know what I'm doing, uh, it's not uh, so much time consuming and uh, resource consuming. Now, if you have to move to the next step and actually go there as a representative myself, then that would complicate things further. Mm -hmm. There is actually another aspect uh, when you have a startup and there is uh, the political aspect, and that's conflict of interest. And I've tried actively to stay outside of public procurement so that uh, there is no even idea that, yeah, someone's abusing their position, mm -hmm. uh, in this case, myself. Yeah. This is valid. These are values, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we we do public procurement in countries around Bulgaria, yeah. in Romania, in, mm. in Macedonia, through partners. Mm. Uh, but yeah, here uh, I've stayed out of it a couple of times. What what, what we actually we actually donated our product to the state government agency. We thought that that's an important tool that they can use. But I didn't want to uh, even have the idea that this uh, is a conflict of interest, that mm -hmm. they um, that I somehow influenced their decision to buy from me and not from someone else. And so we then donated it. We still have a contract for donation. We extended it recently. Uh, I think that's that's the right way to do it. Uh, and if if a startup and a business relies primarily or solely on, on public funding, uh, it's not a good business anyway. And if you're just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. There's something I've always wanted to ask as someone that has been in a position that working with the government, helping uh, basically investing in, in basically a society and in the government because government rules society. So, um, and here are the values that um, I really like, uh, not putting yourself in a position where people can say, okay, um, there is a conflict of interest there. How do you develop such values and how can we make sure that the people that are coming in to rule are having the values that prevent them from Short answer is you Corruption. can't. Short answer is you can't. Uh, there's no recipe for that. It's uh, a, probably a combination of education, uh, I mean, parenting when you're just a small kid, having these values from your parents, uh, and then environment. Uh, if it, there is no uh, guarantee that a generally good person that uh, is altruistic, that uh, wants to help, that 
hasn't been doing any shady stuff before getting there. Uh, you can be sure that once uh, subjected to pressure, uh, they won't crack under that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's there is no good answer, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Uh, there are means and mechanisms to kind of uh, protect them from doing so. Uh, if uh, I mean to prevent them from doing so, mm -hmm. uh, but as we see, they're not quite effective, and mm -hmm. they they rely on a very complicated scheme of institutions that should work uh, as they're su supposed to and when they don't uh, the whole things things get twisted mm -hmm. your your role towards public service uh, was very gradual and in intentional you've been involved in a lot of open code code projects and um, other IT projects for the public good and um, you've also been an advisor to the government in building e-governance um, what led you into that? Yeah, it, it was gradual, that's correct. Uh, whether it was intentional, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> uh, it was more of a, uh, a couple of subsequent decisions that seemed logical and right. Uh, so, for example, when I started uh, in this uh, group of uh, developers that did these projects, uh, it was, yeah, why not? I mean, I've already had uh, done some, some open source projects that tried to do some uh, collecting documents, making, it, making them searchable, documents from parliament, from different commissions. Uh, and then, well, it's only logical to kind of join with other people that want to create these projects. And then when the invitation for uh, an advisory role in government came to that group of people, uh, I was like, well, yeah, I have a, a developer job at the moment that can go part-time, probably. Uh, it That worked, actually. I was part-time advisor, part-time engineer for uh, a foreign company. Uh, and uh, yeah, it kind of worked out. I used my previous background in the government projects. Uh, and then the next step, uh, joining a party, joining a, a list, all of those were not carefully planned uh, steps on the way forward it was just uh, yeah do you want to do that does it sound good to you and at the time yes that sounded like the good mm -hmm. thing to do i still think that that was the right decision um, but it was not a carefully planned uh, set of, of steps it just happened that way mm -hmm. through various uh, decisions that i think were right what led you into that? It seems like the people that you were working with on this open code project were like the, your people, yeah. kind of people that shared the same passion or yeah, yeah, um, values for transparency. I mean, it, it's again one of those buzzwords that yeah, transparency. Let's put slap transparency on everything, and it would sound cool. But we actually understood what stands behind that uh, label. Uh, and when you see that people actually understand what stands behind that label, uh, you want to work with them. Yeah, transparency stands behind volunteering as well. So um, happy that you mentioned that. Um, what have you learned from, from the whole process up until now? That everything is more complicated than it looks. <laughs> uh, when you have uh, a hammer, uh, in our case, uh, the ability to create uh, programs, uh, you think that everything can be solved that way, well, at least initially when you're young and uh, inexperienced and naive. Uh, and then 
obviously that's part of the problem but everything is much more complicated and it actually ends up to the uh, political level to have people knowing uh, and having the, the right values mm. to when, when I speak about transparency for example uh, it's easy to say well just uh, put everything into CSV and XML and publish it somewhere on the portal the technical part is kind of easy mm, convincing people that that's a thing that matters a thing that uh, uh, they should invest their time on. I think that doesn't put them in risk uh, because they open too much data. Uh, a thing that doesn't uh, actually prevent some corruption scheme that they participate in, uh, and so that it's against their interest. Uh, being able to write the right legislation, defend it in Parliament, uh, to actually get those things published is the complicated part. Uh, having the CSV is this part. I have a, a very uh, kind of distilled story about that. Uh, in one of the institutions, I go there, I speak to the head or the deputy, I don't remember exactly, uh, and I say, okay, you should open uh, that database that you have here. Mm. And they say, well, why? <laughs> and I explain about the transparency that uh, they, anyway, they have uh, a search function in their website, just the data is not available uh, in bulk. Uh, well, we don't have enough resources. Uh, well, it might not require too many resources. Well, uh, we should have a separate project. Uh, it could take a half a year. Uh, we should probably collaborate on that. Uh, we don't have the people here, the, res the human resources, etc. It took me really an hour of this back and forth uh, to convince him to just get me to the IT department to speak to some person there. Uh, when I got there, I asked them, where's that database? Well, it's managed by some other company. Which is that company? This one. Oh, I happen to know the, a person that works there. Give him a phone call. How long will it take for you to open that data? I'm a bit busy right now, but I'll do it tonight. <laughs> I mean, it, it really took less effort to do the actual opening of the data than to convince uh, mm. the person in charge. Uh, and that's a, a kind of a minified example uh, because for that was not so uh, big and important uh, data set, but it's a minified example of what happens in, in the whole world. You have to really do a lot of convincing, a lot of uh, going back and forth, different people in departments, uh, challenging sometimes their, their values and their expectations in order to get something technically simple done. Yeah, in summary? Making things simpler, making them digital means making them simpler and quicker. Yes, there is a risk of, of not uh, successfully making them simpler, mm -hmm. uh, but that's the end result that we're aiming at. Awesome. Um, what or who sparked your strong civil stance and this activity? People tend to stay away from politics, especially when they have a nice, prestigious job. Yeah, it's it's irrational. I have to admit, <laughs> uh, it's a lot of uh, things that you have to speak with people, people that you don't like, people that sometimes uh, you have very good reasons to not speak to. Uh, I don't really know what sparked it, what what led to that. Uh, probably 
the protests 2013 were one of the drivers that kind of got a lot of previously not politically active uh, or affiliated people to to look into that and see that well uh, we have to pay more attention we have to be more active so that this doesn't happen again uh, so that may be one of the factors that contributed power of uh, social media and uh, overwhelming information on the internet uh, created this very interesting concept about uh, confirmation biases by people so the public debate generally suffers a lot from people being absolutely certain that they know how things go and as you previously said um you under you, you underestimate the complexity of how the political life goes um what's the way out is there a way out that you can see i mean how can we create an impact on this bias forming um social media that echoes around information that basically says yeah you're right and these are your people and this is your bubble yeah there are two aspects to that one of them is the technical and regulatory aspect that social media actually should not uh, act against the public interest in that regard meaning it shouldn't uh, focus on providing you the content that you want to click now that stands against their uh, business model i know uh, but it, that's the way it promotes conspiracy theories that's the way it promotes your viewpoint exaggerated to extremes uh, and it's doing that there have been numerous uh, studies that it it really is doing that it promotes extreme views it uh, it creates these echo chambers deliberately uh, so that you feel better staying there and clicking the things that you like uh, uh, and that's that's a systemic and strategic risk and it has to be addressed through some sort of regulation or some sort of at least transparency again from those companies because we know that they're doing that uh, from kind of uh, watching from the side we should have the data from the inside to see how that's happening why it's happening that's one aspect the the technical giants uh, we as a small country can't directly influence that but through our representative in the Europe, european parliament and the council uh, the european union uh, we can uh, the second aspect is the giving example politicians uh, should lead by example that's kind of obvious well not so uh, and they should be the ones that speak freely uh, that speak to the people that they don't like uh, to achieve common goals to disagree to, to be able to disagree uh, politely without destructive uh, comments we don't see that at the moment uh, we see people that are um, worse in communicating with each other than two strangers on the street uh, for political gains for growing lines uh, of uh, political division uh, that's not good uh, and it has led us to three elections in a row uh, because people don't want to people in politics don't know how to speak to each other uh, to achieve consensus we've turned consensus into a bad word uh, in politics at least uh, and 
that has to change. I don't know how exactly. Mm. Uh, for my part, I'll do what I can, but it's a bigger process. Mm. Uh, and we should expect that from the politicians. Is there a positive side on the social media and the way? Because there's always like two sides of the coin. There is, I, I personally see that um, social media or the people that are in social media um, are looking for other sources of information sometimes. And it's uh, very hard for for people that are writing um, their personal opinion to end up have only the audience of the people that they uh, that they are supporting by their supporters. So they're not only supporters in your Facebook profile. There are also people that are there just to uh, like create a debate, like, except for trolls, of course. Sometimes you can't distinguish the two because, mm. and that's uh, in socialism, uh, the kind of the social fabric was damaged or even destroyed. And people couldn't really freely talk to each other, discuss things, do things together. Uh, and those skills, uh, we have to develop them further because you can't really sometimes distinguish between a troll and someone that's legitimately just disagreeing with you. Uh, and there's always all these labelings, uh, yeah, you're a troll because uh, you're a troll from that party because th these people exist, they write in a certain way. Uh, but then normal people also disagree and also write in a not so well-refined way. Uh, and it's sometimes yeah tough to to say who's a troll and who's not. I assume that nobody's a troll. Mm. I try to answer legitimate criticism with uh, polite answers. Sometimes that's wrong. Sometimes mm. I'm answering trolls, and that's a waste of time. Uh, but I think it generally helps. Previously, you said that being in the in politics means that you should be giving your personal example. This is the ultimate leadership, isn't it? Did you manage to get some lessons from uh, your um, public service that you can apply leadership-wise in your in your company in Log Sentinel? Well, first, um, digitalization doesn't happen without leadership, and I kind of thought it might just go as a technical topic that yeah, we'll change those laws, we'll make these. Uh, systems and things will work, uh, they can't. You have to have uh, the thought leadership, the the person that is kind of recognized as the one that, uh, that knows how these things that can be done uh, and that convinces people and drives people's opinion that this is actually important. Because the e-government thing has been uh, unimportant for 20 years. It hasn't happened, not because, not only because there's corruption and incompetence and a lot of problems, but because there hasn't been leadership on the topic and it hasn't been important. Uh, yeah, some, some IT people will do some systems and will replace uh, the paper with a file. It sounds so boring in general. Uh, and so you have to have the, the leadership in that regard to, to make it happen. Uh, and back to whether it's... Uh, that's that's a valuable lesson for uh, for startups. Uh, yes, if you have a product, uh, by 
default. Uh, it's not something that uh, is universally recognized as uh, something you need, because otherwise it would have existed uh, a long time ago as a government. Uh, so you have to have the, the thought leadership and uh, the drive to, to push that idea further, even though uh, it might uh, you might see disagreement, you might see people that are uninterested, that think that that's unimportant. Uh, you believe in that uh, and you have to lead the way to making this recognized. Whether that would result in a business success or not, sometimes uh, there have been cases in the startup world that someone pioneers something, someone drives some topic uh, uh, and some concepts uh, very far, and then their business fails for other reasons. Uh, but the, the niche is now explored, it's considered something that should be taken, and then someone else comes and, and creates a successful business out of it. Uh, but the role of the initial thought leader mm. uh, shouldn't be ignored. Um, I, I really like one of your quotes, to understand what I think. Uh, you must see what I do. Uh, literally, literally translated, of course. Um, what do you think about integrity both in business and government slash politics? It's very, very important for me personally. I mean, uh, sometimes to extremes, uh, but you can't really uh, sacrifice that. Uh, I recently retweeted uh, Mark Manson on integrity. Uh, and he said, yeah, uh, popularity is uh, your really, uh, in popularity with other people and that can go up, it can go down, it can be replenished. Uh, integrity is popularity with yourself and that can't be fixed once it's broken. And so I'm very, very careful not to break integrity. It's the mirror test. Awesome. Um, this is epic. Thanks for sharing it. So, um, as a last question in our interview, um, I would like to ask you the other recursive, <laughs> recursive question. What would you like to be remembered? Uh, first, for being a good person. Uh, that's broad enough, generic enough, but uh, good enough for me. <laughs> uh, I don't envision, uh, at least, in this age, uh, something very specific that I want to leave for the generations that would be too grandiose and uh, pretentious. Uh, so, yeah, just for being a good person. Uh, Bojo, thank you for uh, sharing your time with us and your uh, experience and knowledge. Um, wishing all the best in, in, your, in all of your endeavors. Um, thank you for being with us this week too. Uh, and we hope to see you next Tuesday. Bye. And that's a wrap for season one of the Recursive Podcast. Next week, we will do a roundup with some of the best insights on leadership from our guests. And stay tuned, we're coming back and with some great conversation with the Bucharest Innovation Community. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. <laughs>